Luther said that what we're going to talk about today is the most important thing in the Christian life. Now, he's a formidable person, and so I take that pretty seriously. We are in the last week of our study in Aspire. We've been doing that over this semester, this six-month period, and we are at the place entitled Eternity, Eternity. And if you've been in Bible study, you know we've been doing it in Bible study and also here at the preaching moment. And so I'm addressing that topic on eternity primarily from Matthew chapter 25. So you can find that in your Bible, Matthew 25. I realize that uh, Bruce Case preached this section not long ago when Sandy and I were gone, but um, you will discover that in, in any passage, if you picked out about 10 preachers, they could all preach the same passage and it would come out 10 different sermons. So uh, there's so much in each one. I came across this a particular place in Scripture in meditating upon this topic of eternity. And one of the things that has just been, I'll say, washing over me as of late is meeting the Lord. Meeting the Lord. Uh, that word meeting can really conjure up all kinds of things in our mind. I know at work, somebody else says, oh, we're going to have a meeting. You go, ugh, not another meeting. You know, we get meeting to death. But you think about it. Depending on what kind of meeting that it is, conjures up different kinds of Things Maybe the boy and the girl are going to meet for the very first time. Ooh, okay now. That's a different kind of a meeting there. Or, you know, you've got a job interview and you're going to meet a new supervisor for the first time. Isn't that incredibly different? I mean, every meeting seems to have its own set of maybe tensions, anxieties, emotions. And such is the case when you talk about meeting the Lord. The first passage that came to my mind was in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We often preach that text at times of funerals. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians and he says, I don't want you to be unaware about those who have fallen asleep that euphemism for people who have died. And he says, you know, I just want you to understand the order there. Certain people, those who have died, are going to rise first, and then we, after them, will rise and what? And meet him in the air. How about that? Is that not a different kind of, I mean, I mean, usually, come on now, if I say one day you're going to meet the Lord, what comes to your mind? I don't think it's the meeting in the air. Well, I'm glad to hear cheers. <laughs> I really am. A lot of people say, you know, there's going to be that big throne. <laughs> and it's going to look an awful lot like a judge. And you're going to meet your maker. So th these words, you know, conjure up all kinds of these different kinds of meetings, conjure up all kinds of pictures in our head. This one in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, where we rise and meet him, is an interesting word that's used there. And it doesn't mean just two people meeting, but it actually carries with it the idea of receiving and inviting in. Receiving and inviting in. And that's what takes me to Matthew chapter 25, because the same word is used in this first parable in chapter five, uh, 25. Now, let me just do some table of contents here. Let me just do a little bit of what I'd like to do. Okay, obviously, we're talking about eternity. And, and to some extent, we're talking about meeting. What do I do? How do I, how do I wait for that meeting? How do I wait for eternity? Those kinds of themes are in there. But just to unpack this and to kind of look at your sermon guide that's there, and I hope that you do have it, we need to wait for eternity like we're going to meet him. Now that should conjure up some different things going on in your mind. 
In this particular chapter, the three parables indicate that we are to meet, we're to, we're to meet him like one prepared for a wedding, number one. Number two, we're to meet, uh, we will meet him like a steward giving an account of a trust. So this is the financial steward giving an, an account of that which has been entrusted to him. Okay, different kind of scenario going on there. Thirdly, we will meet him like one meets a sovereign judge. Now I realize that, that means, okay, on that 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 throne room, that judgment, that kind of thing. But we'll see there's a few other things going on there. And uh, that's where we're going. Now, before we do that, though, I want to note some characteristics about each one of these that ties them together. I think it is a whole. In fact, uh, Bruce, when he preached this section, uh, showed how the thread weaves between all seven of these parables jumped together. I'm just going to stick right here with chapter 25 and show you that first of all each is responsible to be ready so the point in each one of these is, is there's some aspect of preparation there's some aspect of we Christians the church are called to be ready secondly in all three of them in each one of them we're called to be responsible to develop in other words this weight is not just strictly a passive weight it's an active weight we're each responsible to develop something different along the way but there's development in each one of them and three each is responsible to demonstrate heart righteousness heart righteousness that's going to be a difficult place to plow and that's where I'd like to get to so as you note, I'm trying to move kind of quickly through this. Let's take a look at some places along the way here in the first of these parables on the ten virgins at the wedding. Then the kingdom, in verse 1, of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealer and buy for yourselves. Verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. After the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us but he answered truly I say to you I do not know you watch therefore you know neither the day nor the hour it's not the first time that he said that but you see here's the setting of a wedding feast in the first century world um, the tradition was a, a betrothal we remember the betrothal uh, with Joseph and Mary and that interaction there so you know that one is betrothed you probably also heard that that betrothal is pretty close to the same thing as marriage no they're not living together but the commitment to one another is almost as if they were already married now during the betrothal period the man's responsibility was to go and build a house literally build his house Often that was on the property of the family estate or the family property. But he would go and he would build a place for he and his new family to live. Now that could take up to even as much as a year, but it wouldn't be any more than a year. And then as tradition has it, most prominently at night, although it didn't have to be at night, but often in the evening hours at least, he would go back to the home of his betrothed, of his betrothed bride. He would go back and he would steal her away. 
He'd put the ladder up against them. Well, whatever, you know. And uh, it, it obviously came with some pomp and circumstance, and the family was involved, and much like a procession or a parade. Now, this particular scene that we're being set here, there's a little bit of a difference of opinion of where exactly these virgins come into play, but um, it seems to fit most um, adequately anyway that there was going to be an appointed place outside of the property of the husband who'd built his house. Now, these ones were supposed to come out to the, in, in the road, someplace out, and meet this procession as it was coming from her house to come for the wedding feast at his house. And so they were to go out and meet. And again, being at night, they had their torches, probably torches, maybe rags soaked in oil or whatever. I know sometimes we think little lamps, but that came a little bit later. These are most likely torches that they came. And as we read in here, of course, some of them were foolish and they didn't come. It seems maybe they went out in the evening and they had enough, but they didn't have the flask with them to, to replenish it because we see here that as the bridegroom was delayed. This is important. <clears throat> because that's us. That's us. You know, often we, we uh, highlight, had a wedding just yesterday, it was a great wedding. Julian and Ashley were married yesterday. Some of you know them, some of you don't. And um, we got to describe the fact yesterday at this wedding that even though Ephesians 5 is talking about Christ and his church, we need to be clear we need to be clear that the church today is in the betrothed position. We're not married already. That's a very important thing. We're in the betrothed position. And the, this description is telling us that one day, and if we watch it, be prepared because we don't know the day or the hour, that, that groom is going to come back and come and we will participate in that. But right now the text says that the bridegroom was delayed. The other thing that says interestingly here is, is that all ten of the virgins fell asleep. Now that's just a parenthetical side thought for where I'm going today, but let's be clear, all of this hubbub, this superstition, these things that we have seen through the years in the newspapers and on TV and now you can go on the internet and Google something about the, the day when Jesus is coming and everybody pack up your possessions and go out to some high hill in Arizona and, and wait for him is ridiculous, especially when it's based on something like this. All ten virgins, the wise and the foolish were asleep. It's okay to sleep. It's okay to rest, whether literally or spiritually. We're not supposed to be wringing our hands. But all ten of them slept in this case. And then the announcement came. He's coming. He's here. And come out to meet him. And this is where these virgins are supposed to go out with the torches and meet and then turn around and come back with him. You see the picture there the meeting and the coming back. That ties into where we were, or at least what I announced to you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to rise and meet him, and then the Bible makes it very clear that all who belong to him will rule and reign for a thousand years on the earth. We'll rise and meet him, and then we'll come back with him. Now, I'm not trying to get into eschatology. I just want you to see that that's what the picture is right here. But take a look. Uh, and in verse 10, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast. Oh, that's good. But then look what it says. And the door was shut. Oh, my friends, today, I tell you, that ought to just land on you, as we say, like a ton of bricks. That ought to sit so heavy on your heart. It does me. It, it, in fact, just in the paragraphs before this, he's talking about Noah. And the Bible actually says in Genesis chapter 7 in the Noah story when the flood started to come, the Bible says, and God shut the door. And God shut the door. Um, I, I, I don't want to pull out, do I have a hanky? I don't have a hanky. I don't want to pull out my hanky. don't have a hanky. Don't want to sweat all over the pulpit. 
Don't want my veins to bulge out of my neck and my bony finger to get into your face. But I'm being somewhat silly. Some of you think that this kind of preaching is preaching of old. Some of this is in, in passe. This is out of historical context, Pastor. I mean, what are you trying to do? Scare people? Let me say, without all of those shenanigans going on, the fear of the Lord is a very real and necessary thing. My friends, there is coming a time when the door will be shut. And if that doesn't, whether you're a believer or not, whether you're a Christian or not, if that doesn't bring some sobriety to your mind and to your heart, something is desperately wrong. The door is going to be shut, and look at these five virgins. They come back and they say, Lord, Lord, there's only one other place in Scripture that uses this kind of, um, it's not really a tense, it's a, it's a voice, it's a mood, grammatically speaking, and it's in Matthew chapter 7 when the same words are used. It's in the vocative uh, mood, and the vocative is this direct discourse, Lord, Lord. In Matthew 7, it's, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do many miracles and wonders? And again, he says, I, I didn't know you. And what I would like to express to you at this point is, is when we think about eternity and we think about meeting the Lord, it's a very grave thing. No matter what picture conjures up to you in your mind, whether you're standing outside of a gate, whether you're standing outside of a door, whether you're standing at a throne of a judgment, and to think that there's a possibility that he says, you depart from me for I never knew you. You, the door is shut to you. I just know of nothing that's that in the right sense of the word scares me more than anything. Not for me, quite frankly. God, by his spirit, has given me the confidence of his spirit. But so many, so many, and we'll talk about why here in the next parables, are not looking forward to it as prepared. Let me tell you, that bride, <laughs> that bride, what was she doing when she was still in mama and daddy's house? You know, okay, so one month. Nobody can build a house in a month, so that's fine. Two months, three months. Somewhere along there, what, ladies? Three months has gone by. Four months has gone by. That's enough time to build a house and to get ready. What is she doing? I'll tell you, she's she looking out that window. You ever waited for anybody? I mean, doesn't time just... Just, you know, you're waiting for your mom to pick you up from practice. You're waiting for somebody else to pick you up from work. And you're waiting. And time is just, she's peering. She's looking. And you bet you she's, she's ready. She's prepared for him to come. Here we have the virgins. Some were prepared. Some were not prepared to meet him. We will meet him like one prepared for a wedding. But then look at the next parable. We will meet him like a steward giving an account. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five. I'm going to move quickly through this. Another he gave two. To one, he gave the one. Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had two went and had two talents more. But he who received the one, in verse 18, talent dug in, in, in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, there it is again. Somebody see it? Do you see it? After a long time. After we're going to come back to this as we wrap up. But he who achieved, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bring the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 22. 
And he also said, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew that you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I had scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest, my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, notice a few things about these guys. They've been, they've been entrusted, some five, some two. I really don't think that there's a difference there other than signifying to the fact that God knows, even in, in Corinthians, Romans, he gives grace, he gives grace gifts according to the measure of faith, he says to us. God knows all about us, all the measures of our faith. And is there a difference? There is a difference. But there's not a difference in the quality. There's a difference in the quantity. How do I know that? Because the same blessing went to the, the one who had two as the blessing that one had had five. They were both faithful in what was entrusted to them. What's God saying? God's saying that you're to be faithful with what has been entrusted to you. And not to look over here and say, well, you know, I have a lot more than he does or uh, she doesn't have as much as I do. No, that's not it. But to be faithful with what he has entrusted to us. We're going to meet him like a steward who has to give an account of what God has entrusted to us. These come, it's very clear about this. There's this slothfulness. I said that up there when I was talking about the, the things that are common to all of these See, they all went to sleep, but the slothfulness comes in the virgins. They didn't come prepared with the oil. The slothfulness here is, is that uh, he's a, he knew about his master. He knew the character of his master. The, the parable doesn't say, oh, you were wrong about the master. Actually, it says you were right. And, and knowing that you were right, you should have put my money in a place where nobody had to do any work. It would just gain interest by itself. But you being the kind of um, slothful, disobedient servant that you are, you're not faithful, you're not reliable, you're not responsible with what has been entrusted to you. Wow. We are going to meet him like someone who has been entrusted with something. Think about that. You've been entrusted with something. I want to hurry to the third parable because there's more that I'd like to tie together with the three. So take a look at the third one, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked, clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then, we will say, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, I want you to note a few things about this particular parable on the separation of the sheeps and the goats. And the, and the interesting thing that I want to note here before we tie other things together is that, that, first of all, while I think that there are some standards here for Christian social ministries, there are some good standards here for Christian social ministries, that's not what this is about. That's not what this is about. You see, he's setting up these two scenarios, but the interesting thing is both parties question the Lord in the exact same way. The, the first group gets a wonderful blessing, and quite frankly, they're almost, at least as far as is being revealed in the text, as surprised as the other. Now, to be clear, I want you to understand, if I didn't do something, if I didn't follow through, if I wasn't obedient in some way, then when somebody comes and says to me, ah, you're wrong, you didn't do that, I'd say, well, okay, that's right. But if I did not know, if I didn't have any awareness of what I had done or not done, I'd say, whoa, what's going on? And that's what's happening here. These who had actually done what they did came with the same question to the Lord. Lord, when did, uh, when did we see you without clothes? When did we see you hungry? When, when are, they seemed to be unaware of what had happened, and yet they were receiving the blessing. And the other group asked the same question. When did we not see this, and what's going on? And what's happening here is the Lord is identifying the natural outflow of the heart, the actions of what these people are doing from the heart. And he is rightfully judging. He is the righteous judge at this point, separating the sheep from the goats. And he is rightfully judging what is flowing naturally from their heart. The, the ones that did right. Oh, wow. Well, where, where? I'm. I didn't even realize I was doing that at the time. I didn't, why, why didn't they? Because it was a natural character of their heart. And the ones who weren't doing it, who were being stingy or not visiting or not welcoming or not helping, uh, again, natural outflow of their heart. What I want to do right now in trying to bring this together is take a look from your from your outline there that you have in front of you. And the reason that I've put it in front of you in writing there and writing up here is because they're, they're somewhat um, jam-packed together. And, and I, see, I want you to see these three kinds of erroneous thinking from these parables. Three kinds of wrong thinking, of erroneous thinking. And, and so the first one I want you to note here is the blatant unwillingness to scrutinize their works, okay? The blatant unwillingness to scrutinize their works. The role of comparative slothfulness of our day fails to awaken many to the serious role that our works play 
in the confirmation of our salvation, in the confirmation of our salvation. The I'm as good as the next guy kind of thinking will render us far below the bar of the obedience of faith. Okay, I said it was jam-packed. Let's go back in the slides there, would you? So it's in front of them, in front. Blatant unwillingness to scrutinize their work. Take a look at the, look at the, uh, the, the virgins. You know, it's like, hey, I got my torch. You know, they got their torch, we got our torch. We're going out here. Hey, they fell asleep, or you fell asleep, you know. You're okay, I'm okay. You know, m maybe you have a tendency to say, oh, well, let's, you know, I saw the pastor do something wrong, so if the pastor does something wrong, maybe that's okay to do that wrong. I'm picking on myself because we all do it. We all, we all have the people who think that they're a little higher on the ladder than we are, a little lower on the ladder, and we just spend our time saying, well, I'm as good as the next guy. But think about where that bar is set. I mean, even the best among us, how far is the best among us below God's standard of holiness? And, and so this is, just disregard uh, wh whether it's the accountant who is just so disobedient and slothful uh, in, in his carrying out of his duties. He knew it. He knew it. You see? And still, he's comparing. He's what, uh, and ignorance isn't going to be good enough. Ignorance is not going to be good enough. Uh, Romans chapter 1 tells us that we can look around us and see God. Oh, when did I? I never, I never, saw, you know, I never saw a guy sleeping out on the sidewalk all night long. You know, I parked my car in there and come and, and, and there's Isaiah again. His name is Isaiah. He's new, relatively new. We, we kind of change over. And so I have to meet new ones who come, you know. And I get out of that, I get out of that truck and I go, oh, gosh. There's Isaiah again, sleeping just dead out right there on the concrete out in front of our church. I mean, Lord, do I have to deal with this guy every day? Listen, I don't need somebody to write on here, you know, you didn't feed, you didn't speak to, you didn't. I got it right here. Ignorance isn't going to work right there blatant unwillingness to scrutinize their works we don't want to scrutinize our works I'm as good as the next guy aren't I the role of comparative that's why I want it in front of you the role of big words a lot of the role of comparative comparing comparing slothfulness of our day fails to awaken many to the serious role that works play we're going to get to more of that, but I want you to remember that. The serious role that works play. Oh, well, Pastor, we're not under works. We're not under the law. We're under grace. We're, we're saved not by works, but by grace. You hold on to that. Hold on to that. That's why I introduced this by saying Luther says that this is the most important thing that you can possibly get, get a hold of. So let's get a hold of it. That our works play in the confirmation. Keyword, confirmation. You're not saved by doing the works, but the Bible makes it clear repetitively. Without these works, James says, I think your faith is worthless. It's dead. Okay? But I'm as good as the next guy. Kind of thinking will render us far below the bar of the obedience of faith. We're lowering the bar. All right, that's number one. Analysis on all three. Take a look at the second one, would you? Number two. A soft view of the holiness of God. I hear from people all the time. Oh, well, you know, I hear what you're saying, but my God is not like that. Let me tell you what. When you think of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and you think of a statement that says, my God is not like that, I want to ask you, who at that point is deciding who and what God is? Who is deciding? When somebody says, my God's not like that, when somebody does that, at that moment, you tell me who's deciding who God is and what he's like. It's that person, isn't it? My God's not like. Who gets to decide what God is like and who he is? Who gets to decide that? 
God gets to decide that. You see? So the soft view of the holiness of God, my God is not like that kind of thinking, fails to appreciate that God sets his own standards and our desire to live in accordance with those standards is a litmus, is a litmus. You need to look at that. Sometimes we don't, usually we use this word litmus as a negative. Well, it's not a litmus test. I don't, I don't believe that's a litmus test. I'm saying to you, God sets his own standards and our desire to live in accordance with those standards is a litmus test for the genuineness of our faith. If it is not your heart's disposition to live by the standards that God sets for his own holiness, there's a good chance you're not a Christian. Oh, Pastor, that sure sounds like, wow, this sure sounds like a works righteousness to me. Again, let me say that we do not perform works in order to be justified, in order to be made right with God. But a person who has been made right with God, a person who has been justified, will live like it. Will live like it. And if these parables are telling us something right, they will live by it through a heart righteousness. They won't live by it because it's written down on stone. It's a natural outflow of their life. But our soft view of the holiness of God, my God's not like that. I mean, he's, God's going to fit into my culture. God's going to fit into, you know. God's not like, oh, you're living on the wrong side of history. God created history. Fails to appreciate that God sets his own standards and our desire, that's a key in this, our desire to live in accordance. I didn't say our ability to match perfectly. Forget that. Forget that. The statement says, and our desire to live in accordance with those standards is a litmus test. If you do not have the desire to live in accordance with his standards, I'm not going to close the door because I don't have the power to shut the door. But I'm really close to saying you're not a Christian. And we live in such a day when people, ooh, you're judging. No, I'm not. Word of God right here. Number three. Number three, the third statement that I want you to see from these parables. The evident lack of appreciation for the simplicity and severity of God's law as confirmation of our faith and his judgments. Now there's some words in there that really need a text. And so I'm going to turn over to Romans chapter 2 very quickly. And I want you to hear these words from Romans chapter 2. I'm going to take it up at verse 6. How am I doing here? I'm doing wonderfully well. How are you doing? I really like this, so I really want you... Come on. This is where it's coming in. This is where it's all coming. We've been given a topic of eternity. We're waiting. We saw the virgins. They went to sleep because he was delayed in coming. The, the accountant, he took a long time to come. When he finally comes to judge, so we're living in that time, waiting for eternity, and pastor is really sounding like we need to pay attention to the way we're waiting. We need to be waiting like somebody waiting to, to get married. I've got a list right here. See this list right here? It's got 90 topics, not 90 just specific things. It's got 90 topics of things that brides and grooms are supposed to do in getting ready for a wedding. Man, there's so much on that list. Whoa. We spend way more time getting ready for a natural wedding than we do a spiritual wedding. Did he say that out loud? He will render, I'm in Romans 2, 6. He will render to each one according to his faith. Well, that's what you expect. That's not what it says. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who 
By patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Whoa! Wait a minute, doesn't chapter 5 say, having been justified by faith? Don't we believe in justification by faith alone? And right here it says, when the Gentiles require them, justified by the work. Doers of the law will be justified. What is he saying right here? Well, there's a lot to unpack in Romans chapter 2, but he's specifically saying what he says in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. God's comparing this role of the Jew and the Gentile in his discussion of obedience here. And when he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, God is saying right here that God is not going to use the law for those people who have not lived under the law. Now that's actually you. Now I realize that the word law conjures up a lot of different things. For some of you, it's the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic Covenant. Some of you, it's just the instruction or the moral law or the civil law that we live under in our country. Here, I believe that he's talking about the instructions of the Word of God. Uh, even if you take it to the Mosaic Covenant, what he's simply saying is Gentiles who didn't live as a Jew... Therefore, they were not of the nation of Israel. Therefore, they didn't live under Israel's national laws. They didn't live that way. So God's not going to take those laws and apply it to somebody who didn't live under that category. But the fact is, and I've already tried to display it a little bit through this sermon, is God doesn't need to do that. God doesn't need to take the law and apply it to somebody who didn't live under the law to convince them that they're a sinner. God has shown that to them in their conscience. Ignorance is not going to work. He's shown that to them in nature and said, look around you. Every one of you is without excuse. So therefore, he's not going to use the law to convince somebody that they're guilty. But then take a look. Without the law, who have under the law. Now, 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. Once again, he does not say, by doing the law. He doesn't say they're righteous, they're made righteous by doing the law. It's the ones who have the law written on their heart, written on their conscience. That by doing this, by the natural, once again, outflow of their heart. Lord, when did we see you? Well, Lord, we have the same question. When did we see you? It's not an issue of knowing and doing the law. It's an issue of the heart and natural outflow of it. But don't lose the point. If those works are not flowing out of you, you run the risk of seeing that door shut. You run the risk of hearing that you disobedient, slothful servant out into the place of eternal fire. You run the risk of saying, sheep, sheep, goat. And my friends, I would just simply ask you, are you willing to risk eternity on that? Ask yourself, go away in the solitude of your own life and say, 
are these are, are living according to God's standards, God's ordinances, God's statutes, yes, God's law, as far as instruction is concerned. Is that a natural outflow of my life? Is it? Oh, well, preachers like you have been preaching like this for decades and centuries. Why, you know, I, I really... I get what you're saying, preacher. You know, I don't care that I'm just like the next guy or, you know, that I get to mold God into the image. You know, but things just don't seem to really be changing very much. Oh, you think you're the first person to say that? You do, do you? How about how about Second Peter, if I can get there someplace really quick as I'm finishing up here. Where is Second Peter? After Hebrews, after James. Not that far. Not that far. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3. There it is. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. In both of them, I'm stirring up the sincere mind by way of reminder to you. I want you to understand, remember the predictions of the prophets and the commandment of the Lord our Savior and your apostles, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Oh, he said he was coming. He's not coming. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as a... Oh, ever since my father and their father and their father, even Abraham for that matter, everything's still the same way. Ah, oh, where's he coming? For they deliberately overlooked this fact that in heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of the water and through the water and through the word of God and that by means of these, the world that that then existed was deluged with water and perished but by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly but do not overlook this one fact beloved with the Lord that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day only two days have passed folks God doesn't count time and this sermon is meant for you and me to wake up and to realize that we exist in an active, waiting, betrothal period right now. And one of those fire and brimstones sermons came from R.G. Lee. R.G. Lee, pastor of the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis before long before Adrian Rogers was. Preached over 1,200 times one sermon called Payday Someday. This is what R.G. Lee said. Payday Someday. God said it, and it was done. Yes, and from this we learn the power and certainty of God. Even though the mill of God grinds slowly, it grinds to powder. Yes, the judgments of God often have laden heels and travel slowly, but they always have iron hands and crush completely. I coached the little guy's baseball team. I don't know how old Benjamin was then, seven, eight years old, nine years old, maybe at the most. Pretty good little team. We did well. Um, you know, at first, at that age, you just got to say, this is a glove, this is a ball, hold it up here, and hopefully when you throw it to him, it, it lands there well enough for him to catch it, you know. They're learning to just throw it back and forth. And ball's set up on a tee so they can hit it like that. And so we got up there, and we, we played a game or two, did pretty well, and then we came to another game. And these little guys, they lost the game. And... Um, me being the old school kind of guy that I am, we circled up around the tree. I got them all to sit down there like that. And much to the chagrin and awe and maybe even shock of parents who are standing on the outsides of these little people, I looked at all those little guys and I said, okay, now you know what it means to lose. Now you know what it means to lose. 
parents are like, who have we turned our kid over to, man? You know, what is it? You know, folks, we live in this kind of society who thinks that there's, there's a second chance and a second chance and a second chance and everything is going to be okay. And somewhere in our lives, somebody needs to look at you and say, one day the door is going to be shut. One day you and I will give an account of how we have handled, yes, works, the way we've handled what's been entrusted to us. We do not want to be one of those people who he says, goat, I did not know you. And I want to pray with you this morning. It's not my intention to, uh, to bring any dramatic addition to the Word of God. This is the Word of God. And yet it still needs to lay as heavy on maybe the teenager or child that's still in the room as much as it does the senior adult who's in the room. Folks, I don't care if you're one foot out of the grave or you've just been born. Well, I'm exaggerating, of course, there. But this is eternity. This is eternity. And I want to pray with you. And I want you to bow your heads. Just go ahead. I know we don't do much of that. We're doing that today. I want you to bow your heads and I want you to close your eyes right now. And I want you to hear the sobriety and the severity of the word of God. Because there's coming a time when the door is going to be shut. Father, I pray right now for those whose heart maybe even is in panic, whose heart is indeed a lack of assurance. And I pray, dear God, that you by your Spirit would take your word and that you would apply it and that you would awaken them. Even just to the extent of saying, I want to be sure. Even to the extent of, I know I don't know the Lord, but I want to know the Lord. I want to know what it means to be a sheep and not a goat. I want to be responsible for the things entrusted to me. I want to know how to live. I want to walk that way. I want it to be a natural outflow of my life. God, I pray that you would take this word of eternity and that before indeed it is everlastingly too late, that you would call your children to yourself this very moment. God, I am totally dependent upon your spirit the power of your word. Save in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to have prayer warriors here on each side. I'm going to be down here today. If you'd like to talk, you'd like to pray, most likely all I'm going to say to you is let's get together and talk more about this. Let's pray more about this. But you, you do what the Lord tells you to do. You stand with us, would you please?